Church, before we begin to talk about wisdom, uh, let's go to the God of all wisdom in prayer. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken through your word. As we come to it now, we ask that you would use your word uh, to make us wise unto salvation. Uh, grow our delight in you for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we heard it uh, just a moment ago, this word in Dave's pastoral prayer, but I want to frame it as a question. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? By that, I mean, are you marked by a willingness to learn? Are you a lifelong student? Or to put it differently, are you a student of life? Is your posture one of constantly growing? Or do you tend to be more fixed, resistant to change, unwilling to grow or be taught? I'm sure your answer would vary depending on the subject. But what about when it comes to the Bible? Does your life give evidence that you have been taught by it? that you have been shaped and molded by the Word of God. Teachability is the willingness to grow in wisdom no matter how far along a person is. The willingness to grow in wisdom no matter how far along a person is. And church family, as one of your pastors, my personal assessment is that you are a very teachable congregation. I tell friends all the time back home that one of the things I love most about being a pastor of Oakhurst Baptist Church is your hunger for God's word, a willingness and a, and a readiness to receive and be taught by the scriptures in order to be changed, to grow in holiness. OBC family, it's a joy to teach a teachable congregation. Today, like Dave said, we begin a five-sermon series through a portion of the Proverbs, a book that aims to teach, specifically teach wisdom, and it does, throw, does so through the use of Proverbs, concise, memorable statements of a general truth. That could be a working definition for you of a proverb, concise, memorable statements of a general truth. Uh, and in my study this week, I found this awesome use of, of alliteration to define it as well. You don't have to write this down, but a proverb is a catchy, concise couplet that clearly captures a crucial concept. <laughs> you don't have to write that down. <laughs> a catchy, concise couplet that clearly captures a crucial concept. Proverbs are not unique to the Bible. They can be found in many cultures, Chinese, Ethiopian, Irish. I mean, the list is long, but the proverbs in the Bible are unique and that they alone point to and focus on the God of the Bible, the true source of wisdom. Now, regarding their purpose or their function, the Proverbs are meant to help us develop a set of practical skills for living well in God's world. A set of practical skills for living well in God's world. Our passage for this morning, it kicks off the book of Proverbs. Uh, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, they're, they're basically an extended introduction. And within that introduction, 
the first seven verses of chapter one, we find a, a preamble of sorts, an introduction to the introduction. After that comes 10 speeches or exhortations from father to son to embrace wisdom and cultivate the fear of the Lord and, and to live accordingly. But within our set of verses that we're studying this morning, we actually find the theme of the entire book of Proverbs. It's right there in verse 7. You'll see it on the front of your bulletin this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom versus folly. All 31 chapters of Proverbs are driving home this point and kind of teasing out this contrast of wisdom versus folly. And in our text for this morning, we actually get to see our first example of that. So if you could, read with me Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. You can find it on page 527 in your pew Bibles, page 527 in the pew Bibles. And as is always the case, if you do not have a copy of God's Word for yourself to read at home, please do take that one as a gift from us to you. Uh, we want nothing more than for you to be able to read the, the words of wisdom from God himself in your own personal study. Again, Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, uh, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. Wisdom, the ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. The ability to discern or judge what is true, right, or lasting. The Proverbs are meant to make us wise, and the wisdom that I pray that we gain today is the biblical truth that, and here's our main idea for this morning, the fear of the Lord keeps us far from folly. Uh, the fear of the Lord keeps us far from folly, and we'll consider this spiritual and practical reality through the lens of wisdom. So verses 1 to 7, wisdom presented. 
wisdom presented. And then verses 8 to 19, wisdom practiced. Wisdom practiced. The Proverbs of Solomon, uh, son of David, king of Israel. Uh, Verse 1 functions as the title of the entire book of Proverbs, and it provides for us both the genre and the author. First, we see that these are Proverbs, concise, memorable statements of a general truth. And it's critical to know that, that that's what we're dealing with here, Proverbs, because it actually impacts how we read this version of the text. Bible Study 101 here, knowing the genre of the book that you're reading is critical to understanding and applying it rightly. We don't uh, read Proverbs the same way that we do uh, narrative, if you will. So when it comes to reading the Proverbs, we have to keep two things in mind. First, uh, Proverbs are by nature probabilities. They are probabilities. For example, if you fear the Lord and make wise and good choices, things will likely, things will probably go well for you. And if you don't fear the Lord, you'll find out today in our text, you're foolish and things likely will not go well. Uh, Proverbs show us what is often true, but not always. Proverbs, again, are by nature uh, probabilities. Also, uh, Proverbs are not promises. Uh, They are not uh, formulas for success. Uh, The best example of this would be the very popular Proverbs 22, verse 6. I'm pretty sure as a child my my mom had this hanging up above my bed. Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Yes, fearing God will most likely lead to a stable life. And raising your kid in a stable home does indeed set them up well. But as we all know, and life testifies, that there are no guarantees. So in reading the Proverbs, we have to remember that by nature they focus on the general rule and not on the exceptions, which there are a lot of. The second thing that we see in Proverbs 1 is the author of Proverbs, King Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, who in 1 Kings 3 asks God for wisdom to lead Israel well. A wish that the Lord granted him, making him the wisest man in Israel's history. 1 Kings 4, verse 31, for he was wiser than all other men. It's this Solomon that penned these Proverbs meant to bestow wisdom on all who read them. Bestowing wisdom, that is the objective of the Proverbs, and many different kinds of wisdom at that. Verses 2 to 6 lay out for us some specifics. The Proverbs are meant for practical wisdom. Verse 3, instruction in wise dealing. In other words, prudence. Right? The reality, whether we realize it or not, is that we need to be instructed in every area of our lives, whether it be learning how to manage our money or whether it be learning how to work hard. We need instruction. We need to be corrected. Right? We need to be taught how to steward all of life in a way that blesses those around us and in a way that honors the Lord. And the Proverbs, they help us to do that. The Proverbs are for practical wisdom. The Proverbs are for intellectual wisdom. Verse 5, increasing in learning. Our ability to learn and reason. Our capacity for knowledge and understanding. If we want to increase in these, which we should, uh, the Proverbs can actually help us grow in these areas. 
Again, the Lord has given you a mind to steward. Uh, The Proverbs provide instruction on how to steward our intellect well. The Proverbs are for intellectual wisdom. Uh, The Proverbs are for moral or ethical wisdom. Moral or ethical wisdom. Uh, The remainder of verse 3, instruction in righteousness, justice, and equity. Uh, Biblical wisdom is not intelligence uh, or a high IQ. Uh, Biblical wisdom is the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, A wise person can tell the difference between wrong and right. And lest you think that we can just presume upon that in our culture, we live in a society that allows for the murder of babies. We live in a society that does not embrace biblical wisdom. The Proverbs are for moral and ethical wisdom. They teach us right from wrong. The Proverbs are for inquiring or probing wisdom. Verse 6, to understand a proverb and a saying, by saying they mean parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. They give insight into concepts that may seem hard to grasp or or understand. For the person who wants to know and understand more, the Proverbs bring clarity. The Proverbs are for inquiring wisdom. Now also, in verses 2 to 6, we see who the Proverbs are for. Spoiler alert, they're for everyone. From the simple and the youth all the way to the wise and discerning. And by simple and youth, maybe the naive or the inexperienced is what Solomon means there. All the way to the wise and discerning. Solomon is implying that we all fall in that spectrum somewhere, right? Therefore, the Proverbs can benefit all of us. So, uh, to the kids and teenagers here this morning, do you want to become wise? Read the Proverbs. Read the Proverbs. They can help you in your friendships. They can teach you how to work hard in school. They'll help you flee from sin and grow in holiness. You don't have to wait to be older to gain the wisdom from the Proverbs. You can have that wisdom now. As a matter of fact, the primary audience of the Proverbs is the young man, is the young person. So young people, Solomon is writing to you and to the older and wiser sages among us. The Proverbs are for you as well. As a matter of fact, they, uh, the way that they're written, actually, they are meant to be returned to over and over again. Uh, At the core of being teachable is knowing that you actually have room to grow. So read the Proverbs and continue to grow in godly wisdom. A proverb a day keeps the foolishness away. In God's providence, he's given us 31 of them. And in most months, a lot of months, it fits just perfectly. So consider reading one proverb a day uh, throughout the course of a month and then start again next month. And so if there is great benefit in the wisdom that the Proverbs provides, then the natural next question is, how do we acquire it? How do we gain this wisdom? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. A common refrain in the sporting world, and I think in other places as well, is this. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. Well, that might be right 
in certain situations, but here in verse 7, we see clearly that how we begin our quest for wisdom matters tremendously. To begin anywhere other than with God, with the Lord, is foolishness. So then, what exactly is the fear of the Lord? Now, at first glance, just take that phrase for itself. It might actually seem odd or, or incorrect or even confusing. Why would God who calls himself love, want us to fear him. Uh, doesn't Jesus say repeatedly in the Gospels, do not fear? And yet Solomon right here is calling us to fear. Which one is it? Now often, and I think correctly, I mean even Dave uh, mentioned it earlier, we think of words like awe and reverence, respect, or even being kind of afraid, a, holiness, a holy fear, if you will. And although those words, I think, do definitely describe parts of what it means to fear God, I think they leave out something that Scripture makes very clear is central to the fear of the Lord. For the Christian, the fear of the Lord has more to do with the delight than dread. For the Christian, the fear of the Lord has more to do with delight than dread, more to do with trust than terror. You know, it's one way to describe the intensity of the Christian's happiness in God. Now follow me. Consider Isaiah chapter 11, verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Delight and fear side by side. Or the prophet Jeremiah, he draws out this same truth in chapter 33, verses 8 and 9. And this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth. Who shall hear of all the good that I do for them? They shall fear and tremble. Why? Because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. That doesn't sound like terror, does it? That is a fear that comes from all the good that God has done for his people. The fear of the Lord is the right reaction to his goodness that leads to submitting all of life to him. The fear of the Lord is the right reaction to his goodness that leads to submitting all of life to him. What we need to understand about the God of the Bible is that he won't settle for a vague preference of him or, or a basic appreciation of him. Uh, to encounter the living God means that we cannot contain ourselves. Uh, seeing clearly God's beauty uh, and his majesty cause us to both rejoice and tremble, to, to fear him rightly. You know, you could almost restate verse 7, this, this part of the passage. Delighting in the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Those who delight in Yahweh, the one true God, the source of all wisdom, grow in wisdom themselves. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed. Or in other words, happy is the one who fears the Lord always. So, when Solomon calls us to fear God, he is calling us to enjoy him both fully and forever. Uh, to submit all of life to him. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our families, our friendship, our money. In this is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. If we are to be wise in all of life, we must begin with God. And because of the fear of the Lord, 
is so tied up with delighting in the Lord to fear him rightly begins with trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. In following Jesus, we follow the one who is the fountain of wisdom, which is why the text says those who despise wisdom are fools. To attempt to find instruction for wise living apart from the author of life is a fool's errand. Christ is the king, and out of his abundant wisdom, he created all things. We live in his world. He is the one who upholds everything. So to seek wisdom apart from him is folly. And we get a glimpse of that folly in the second half of our passage. But before we go there, let me address for a moment those who might be wondering, what if I don't fear God the way that you are describing? Well, there's two ways that I think I would approach that question. Here's the first. Uh, Lack of fearing God rightly may be a matter of remembering what God has actually said about himself in his word, a matter of remembrance. Uh, Maybe, for example, your fear comes from viewing him as a terrible dictator or a fearful judge. Uh, Friend, uh, remember his love and care for you in Christ. Allow the goodness of the gospel to once again stoke your affections for Jesus. The gospel, the biblical truth that we have been created by and for a good and gracious God. And like Adam, our sin has separated us from this good God, instead making us his enemies. And left to ourselves, there is no good in us. And we deserve and will receive the full weight of his wrath in hell. Yet out of God's abundant mercy and grace, he sent his son Jesus, both fully God and fully man, to live a life that perfectly feared the Lord. His life culminated in him being hung on a cross to die. His body was buried in a tomb, and three days later, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus rose from the grave, appearing to the disciples and hundreds of others. Jesus ascended into heaven where he currently sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And only those who fear him rightly, those who delight in him fully, will receive eternal life. And those who despise the God of all wisdom, the the spiritual foolishness that is, they will spend eternity enduring his wrath. Friends, our hearts grow in the fear of the Lord by marveling at God's mercy and grace in the gospel. This is why we gather Sunday after Sunday to grow in our fear of the Lord, to grow in our delight for God as we recount his many, many kindnesses to us. The other reason for the lack of the fear of the Lord may be because you have never actually trusted in the Lord for salvation. If you've not trusted in Christ for salvation, I want to be clear. To attempt to gain wisdom apart from God is a fruitless endeavor. Whatever wisdom that you think you have will do nothing for you when you stand before God on judgment day. Friend, the wisdom that you need is to be made wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You need a wisdom from above that comes only from fearing 
the Lord, from delighting in Jesus Christ. And the good news is that you can actually have that, that wisdom now, that knowledge, if you would but repent of your sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to have all the world's wisdom and forfeit his soul? We'd love to talk with you more about what it might look like for you to trust in Jesus and to begin to gain this wisdom. Come talk to me uh, or one of the other pastors or maybe, maybe even the person who brought you to church. We'd love to tell you more about how you can have this wisdom that leads to salvation. And this brings us to our second point, wisdom practiced. Uh, wisdom practiced. Back in 2010, uh, I graduated from college with a degree in exercise science. It's hard to say, 2010, my goodness, that was a long time ago. And like all of the science disciplines, students are required to take both lectures and labs. Uh, lectures were where you learn concepts and ideas, and the labs were where you go about applying those concepts and ideas. Verse 7, verses, excuse me, 1 to 7, uh, Professor Solomon is teaching a concept, the beginning of wisdom. Verses 8 to 19, He's applying that concept using the relationship of a son to his parents. Now, we all know by experience, as parents or having been parented, that part of being a good parent is giving warnings. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Look both ways before you cross the street. Don't talk to strangers. You know, warning our children is part of how we love our children. Warning our friends is part of how we love our friends. And we see this love on display beginning in verses 8 to 10. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Christians need warnings because we are a wayward people. Christians need warnings because we are a wayward people. Our sin has made us prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And warnings from the word and from God's people are expressions of his love and mercy toward us. Notice the verbs in verse 8. Hear, uh, forsake not. In other words, don't reject this wisdom. Receive this warning. Uh, the first thing that we learn about the wise is that wise people listen. Wise people listen. They receive instruction and teaching. Or to use the word from the beginning of this message, wise people are teachable. Wise people are teachable. They don't assume they know everything. Every situation in life is a chance to learn. Church, right now you're listening to this Sermon, you are being wise if you're not asleep. You are listening to God's word, his instruction to you in how to live for his glory. And that's the aim of every pastor who steps into this pulpit, to convey God's instruction to the church so that the church would not forsake his word. But Sunday morning sermons are not the only place that we receive instruction and teaching from the Lord. One of the highest goods of being a member 
of a local church is that we have actually promised in our church covenant to warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as occasion may require. A primary way that we help each other grow in Christ's likeness is through discipling relationships where we both give and receive warning and instruction and encouragement. Uh, For those who are in discipling relationships, is warning each other part of your discipleship? Is warning each other part of your discipleship? It should be. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now I know in our individualistic society, this makes some people really uncomfortable that we would actually intervene when we see someone headed toward sin. Oh, but friends, for the Christian, for the person who is wise, that kind of warning is a graceful garland for the head. It's a pendant for the neck. It's beautiful. It's, it's welcomed. Uh, being a member of a church is a, is a volunteer, voluntary signing up to give and receive this kind of warning and instruction to one another. But there is another relationship where warnings and instructions are given that's, that's involuntary, uh, parents and children. So to the parents this morning, you have a God-ordained responsibility to warn and instruct your children. That's what we see happening here in this passage. A father is, and mother are warning their son of the dangers of being enticed by those who are greedy for unjust gain. It is a very normal and natural thing to warn our children of, of say, physical or mental or emotional dangers. But as Christians, we have a specific responsibility from the Lord to warn our children of spiritual danger. Parents, you are the primary discipler of your children. As much as we are thankful for their service, it's actually not the child care workers. It's not, it's not OSM, right? It's, it's not the Grove workers. God has given your children to you, which means you must tell them about, the God, and, about God and the salvation he offers through Jesus Christ. Family worship, uh, scripture memory, praying together, uh, memorizing catechisms, singing Christian songs, reading Christian books with them, discussing sermons with them, leveraging experiences and events in life to point them to the God who made them. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Uh, Teaching them diligently is definitely more than just warning them, but it's definitely not less than warning them. Children, uh, teenagers, as much as your parents have a responsibility to warn and instruct you, uh, you have a responsibility to listen. Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is why if you have Christian parents, it is a tremendous blessing. Because as they warn and instruct you, it's, it's not just for your physical well-being, but your spiritual well-being also. 
So hear your father's instructions. Forsake not your mother's teaching. We need warnings and instruction because sin is very enticing. It's often attractive. Uh, It's often alluring. Think about it. If it wasn't, why would we do it? Uh, But the wicked nature of sin is that it always hides the price tag. It may seem sweet or fulfilling in the moment, but its end is always death. And so this loving father and mother warn their son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not be persuaded. Do not give in. And, but in giving, them, giving their son this warning, they had a, a particular temptation in mind, a particular sin in mind. Greed. Greed. Verses 11 to 14. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. Hey, man, we figured out how to get rich quick. Come hide out with us, and let's wait for an innocent person to walk past. When they do, we'll jump out, kill them, and take all their money. This is a modern-day gang. This is peer pressure. Uh, This is foolishness on display. The lie that this gang is believing and that they're inviting the young man to believe as well is that somehow they will finally find uh, contentment, uh, happiness, fulfillment in possessions. Uh, They so valued precious goods that they were willing to do irrational, foolish things to get them. They were willing to kill Paul warns uh, Timothy of this very temptation in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Uh, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money can make you do evil things. Uh, Money can have an intoxicating effect in that, like alcohol, it can cause you to view yourself wrongly as well as others wrongly. Uh, People will become objects to get more money or or objects in the way of getting more money. So I want to ask the question, friend, do you have an unhealthy love of money? Do you have an unhealthy love of money? We live in a very wealthy nation and in a very wealthy city. So this is not a a question that's irrational to ask. Are you not sure? Here's some questions that you could ask yourself. Are you generous with your money? How does your heart respond when you don't have much money? Uh, If I were to look at your checking account right now, Where would I see most of your money being spent? Do you tithe? Do you give to the church regularly? Uh, You do realize the whole whole, uh, exercise of tithing, it's it's to remind us that all things belong to the Lord. Not just what you're giving, actually what you're, you're keeping as well. It all belongs to the Lord. 
Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've heard it said that the heart that loves money is a heart that pins its hopes and pursues its pleasures and puts its trust in human resources. Love of money is essentially putting faith in money, putting faith in resources. It's putting trust, confidence, assurance in something that can ultimately be taken away, something that won't last. And so we combat temptation toward love of money by seeing it for what it truly is. It's just a resource. It is just a resource along with all other resources meant to glorify God. The Proverbs are like an x-ray of the human heart. They allow us to see below the surface and reveal the wisdom or folly of a particular situation. In this case, we, just, we see just how foolish and how empty it is to give in to the sin of greed in verses 15 to 19. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. Sin often has a progressive nature to it. It begins with small concessions. It won't be that bad. That lie won't hurt anyone. I can look one more time. And as we get comfortable and invite sin into our lives, before we know it, it's caught everything on fire. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? You know, one lesson we see clearly in this proverb is that it is foolish to entertain sin or to be around those who do. Do not walk with them. Don't set foot on their path. Look at what they're doing. Look at where they're going. They're headed in the wrong direction. This is, you know, the utility of the Proverbs. We, we read them. We gain wisdom to know what the final outcome is of those who participate in wickedness, death. Solomon here, he exposes for us the, the vanity of those who are greedy for unjust gain. It's like setting a trap for a bird in front of the bird. Right? If that bird is smart, he's not coming anywhere near that trap. And instead of the bird getting trapped, it's the greedy ones who set the trap who get caught in their own net. Uh, friends, verses 15 to 19 are driving home the point that greed is self-destructive. Uh, greed is self-destructive. It refuses to be satisfied. Uh, the love of money is sinful because it steals worship from the, from the God that deserves it. 
The love of money is sinful because it steals the worship that only God deserves. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It is unwise. It is foolish to love money because money is a cruel master. The love of it will lead you into folly. It will lead you into death. It takes away the life of its possessors. And those who are wise stay far away from those who are greedy for unjust gain. Because to do so could mean joining them in their self-destruction. So we must take to heart Hebrews 13, verse 15. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Church family, we have Jesus. And he is a far better master than money. He cannot be stolen. He will never run out. And only he can truly satisfy your soul. Only he can give eternal assurance. Jesus is the best retirement policy. Jesus is the best investment plan. He offers riches to us that neither moth nor rust can destroy. Heavenly riches, life everlasting. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The fear of the Lord keeps us far from folly. It's the fear of the Lord that provides the wisdom necessary to see the folly of greed and unjust gain. The wise man understands that the love of money will only lead to his own destruction. Whereas the fool who despises wisdom is is blinded by love of money, foregoing an even greater love, the love that God offers to us in Christ. May we be those who embrace godly wisdom by growing in our fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks as the all-wise God, who out of your abundant mercy and grace had provided a way for the foolish to become wise in Christ. As we give ourselves to the means of grace that you have provided for us to grow, Lord, grow us in the fear of you. Help us to delight completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen.